Within the depths of the strip mall of the dam lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles. To scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We the 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 story so far. Profligator Daniel has been banging out a story on Clark Nova about a society conclave wherein he presented In the Mouth of Madness, John Carpenter's Lovecraft tribute film from 1994. Sam Neill stars as John Trent, an asylum inmate telling a story to a psychiatrist about the breakdown he had during a gig he had as an insurance investigator, searching for lost horror author Sutter Kane, whose books are rumored to cause insanity in their readers. Trent tells about how he solved some puzzles and found the supposedly fictional town of Hobbs End with one of his clients, Linda Stiles. Not only did the town actually exist, Sutter Kane was indeed there, and he's played by Jürgen Prochnow, and there's no submarines. I suppose you could call this one Das Book. Something is definitely off in Hobbs End, though. The town is rife with cheap horror tropes mysteriously brought to life. Packs of murderous mutant children chase crippled dogs. Elderly couples publicly engage in BDSM that gets authentically. Random farmers blow their heads off with shotguns in restaurants after saying, he wrote me that way. Styles confronts Sutter Kane in the creepy old church and after he confesses he's simply a conduit through which the eldritch horrors from beyond convey their thoughts of madness to the populace, he forces her to read his book. This strikes her crazy enough that she makes out with the monstrous conjoined twin fused to the back of his neck and tragically isn't named Kuato. She returns to Trent and gets freaky with him, putting him in a nice way, and he decides to get the fuck out of Dodge. He can't leave though. Every time he drives away from the torch-wielding freak mob down the street and out into the cornfields, somehow he ends up right back where he started. He decides to ram-raid the flake brigade parade barricade all over that esplanade, but swerves aside at the last second when he sees Styles standing among them. However, this is the point when Profligator Daniel has run out of gas and is laid off typing a story to give Karkin over another dose of bug powder. Let's rejoin Brother Daniel to see where he is now. Welcome back, fellow Inquisitors of the Cinemania Society, brethren and sistren, and all of the Thank above. You. Um, <laughs> Brother Zachariah. Guardian of the Door, do you want to take it away? Explain to us the final act of this wonderful movie? This is a wonderful movie, and I would love to. Sam wakes up in an old-school confessional box. How did he get there? We don't know. Maybe they assembled a porta confessional. That could be what the woman with the axe was up to. Anyways, (laughs) Sutter Kane is playing the part of the priest here and enjoys a long rant about eldritch nightmares from beyond and the ways of religion has failed to understand and the anatomy of horror, you know, the usual Sunday school stuff. My rabbi used to talk about this all the time. Oh yeah. He had an awesome (laughs) rabbi. (laughs) Yeah, Leviathan 538, right? (laughs) Um, Most importantly, he reveals the plan. You see, if a critical mass of people start to see reality the way he sees it, then the world itself will start to agree with them. It's an interesting thought experiment, but it does rather depend on the idea that cheap paperback horror novels have the power to inspire deep personal revelation. And if you're on board with that thought, then maybe you're Sutter Kane. Think about it. Eh? Eh? Clever. Eh? Eh? Postmodernism. <laughs> The book. <laughs> oh, I, I have some thoughts about this, but I'll reveal them when we get to judgment. Postmodernism, the board game. Death of the author. Postmodernism, the flamethrower. 
this was actually a really interesting tangent. They went off on this for several minutes. Yeah, I think this was like what the guy who was smoking, you know, and then decided to write, like got into his brain and then went, this would make a great script. This really reminds me of that meme, the one that has uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. Don't eat that poo, you're eating recursion. Postmodernism in the, what is it? Oh, shit. Damn it, that joke would have worked better if I remembered what uh, postmodernism is. No, no, it's shush. I know what postmodernism is. It's <laughs> called Ten Acre Woods or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, Consider to yourselves again. blessed for not having to take a postmodernism class. I practically majored in postmodernism. I love that <laughs> shit. Sam Neill is still, still bravely trying to say it's all a con. Sutter Kane takes him to his special little writing nook and gives him the finished manuscript. Because it, it's <laughs> the full manuscript. Because it's time for Sam to do the job he came here to do. Heyo. He reveals the final horror. Heyo. Sam Neill is a character in the book too. Sutter Kane wrote him for one purpose to bring the manuscript back to the publisher and so spread this weirdness into the world at large. Now, to be fair, the entire postal service exists to do exactly this kind of job much more effectively. But Sutter Kane prefers the personal touch. He even handwrites his manuscripts on a typewriter. What a pretentious dick writing on a typewriter. I mean, anyone who uses a typewriter <laughs> has to be the hugest prick. Anyhow, Sam refuses to go along with all of this, and Sutter Kane finds that delightful. I mean, think about it. A freelance insurance investigator? How would that even work as a business model? The threads of Sam's life comes apart like a cheap jumper in the claws of an angry toddler. Okay, yes, I get your point, Clark. Very funny. Now stop writing my fucking story. Just trying to make you see the world for what it is. Everything that's taken place has been Sutter Kane's writing all along. Sam doesn't believe it. But then maybe that's just because he was written not to believe it. But maybe that's just what Sutter Kane wants him to think. But maybe he only thinks that because the eldritch horrors wanted him to write that Sam would think he would believe that Oh, my fucking head hurts. Okay. A long tunnel has appeared, and Kane says it leads back to our world. The sweaty door is pulsating strongly, and Sutter Kane cannot hold them back any longer. In one of the most visually striking shots, Kane appears to tear the scene open, tearing reality like a sheet of paper and leaving a gaping void where the door and he just stood. In fact, it's literally paper where the edges fold over. We see printed words, the words of the very movie. Beyond the tear is darkness, and there's something horrible in it. Sam runs as they start to come through. He is being chased by horrible, moist, tentacle-bearing, slimy, nasty things. I have seen the future, and it glistens damply. Sam falls over while running, which is what you get for insisting on looking cool with a cigarette while investigating all that fraud. And he wakes up in broad daylight outside. The tunnel has indeed led back into the real world. Sam has no problem hitching a lift, and he's chucked that manuscript away. I'm sorry, but that just is, stretches my suspension of disbelief to the breaking point that Sam Neill would be able to hitchhike that easily. 
<laughs> it was the 80s. As if no one else had ever seen The Omen 2. Right. <laughs> he that winds up in a cheap 90s. You're telling me if you saw Sam Neill hitchhiking on the side of the road, you wouldn't pick him up. In 1995. In 1995. Yeah. No, yeah. 94. 94. 94. Was still yeah. the early 90s, which actually are just a giant mass hallucination of the front <laughs> So, like, yeah. it didn't actually happen. We all know this, right? I'm you'd aware. hit the gas and you'd keep on pressing until the carpet crunched. Hey, I actually managed to hitchhike well into the 2000s. And you turned I, out fine. And I'm no Sam Neill in the looks department. That's all I'm saying. Well, that doesn't explain the tinfoil feather. Well, I wasn't wearing it back then. I hadn't seen this movie yet. He winds up in a cheap motel, and it does not seem like things are getting back to normal a bit. However, the skinny teen at the front desk tells him a package has arrived for him. And wouldn't you know, it's the manuscript. See, Sutter Kane knows how to use the post like a goddamn normal person when he wants to. Sam decides to threaten the kid, demanding to know who brought the package. The kid's large, angry, the kid's large, angry father steps out of the office and Sam decides to stop with the threatening like a real man. So after burning the manuscript this time, Sam hops on the Greyhound-style bus. He's stuck next to some old bat who wants to tell him about Depression-era New York, where bodies were stacked two, three feet off the curb. Suffering something of a Depression era on this long-ass bus ride, Sam nods off and dreams that Sutter Kane is there. Sutter Kane isn't angry. He's just disappointed. He just wants Sam to understand that he's become the new god now. So that's nice. In another interesting visual, he mentions to Sam, did I ever tell you my favorite color is blue? And when Sam jerks awake suddenly, everything is massively color-graded blue. It's a neat touch that really works. And Sam screams his head off, but then he wakes up again. It was a nightmare within a dream. Regardless, Dream Kane has made his point. And this is a great rehash of a, an old horror movie trope. They do this joke a couple of times where he wakes up from a nightmare and then that's also a dream. So the dream within a dream, within a right. story, within a yeah. story. Oh, the, the jump scare, but you're still dreaming. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't even scare, know how many deep we've gone. <laughs> now, the, the kids the kids in the hall made a whole like sketch about that yeah i feel like we need to have like a counter we can show people of like this is how many levels in we are at the moment like, <laughs> you had the peanut butter dream again yes we are doomed sam looks up the town of hobbs Inn at some kind of information bureau and is told rather rudely i might add that there was never ever 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 any town by that name in worse news he goes to the publishers to try to prevent the book being released, only to be told that he had given them the manuscript months ago. It's already out. Furthermore, Charlton Heston has now never heard of Styles, his replicant secretary. Sam is upset. He had come to quite like her. She's not a replicant. She's made of people. Made of people. Charlton Heston fans will get that joke. All right. Not only is the book out, a movie is going to be made. And Sam basically spirals from this point. The book is a massive hit. There's a queue around the block at his local bookshop. Remember, this is the 90s. And in a final insult, the cover even has his face on it. Sam confronts a harmless book-loving member of the public and straight up axe murders him. I guess just because the nice man is bleeding from the eyes that have one extra pupil than they should, creepy though it may be, 
Polychoria is a disability. Google it. Nice one, Sam. I don't know that I believe that that a bookstore would have a line out and around the block. I just don't know that I'd buy that. Okay, so you got to remember, A, this was in the 90s, but B, I worked in a bookstore for like four years. I can absolutely confirm this for anything Nora Roberts or, or J.K. Rowling related, including the axe murders. Total, total buy it. I actually remember waiting in line at bookstores during that time, uh, mainly to get autographs. I did get Anne Rice's autograph on a uh, copy of one of her books when it released. Oh, God, those were the worst. Those were I believe the worst. it. Well, no, second worst. Though. The first worst <laughs> was when folks would come up and say, hey, I'm looking for a book. I don't remember the title or the author. I remember I had a blue cover. Yeah, right over here. This is our <laughs> In a world where you can just have anything you want delivered with a click of a mouse, it's that little thing that really dates this film, isn't it? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the bookstore. As far as Sam's concerned, it's all coming to pass. The world is going to be insane, and he's one of the last normal people left. We're back at the padded sale now, and Sam has just finished telling his story. It's all too late now. Outside things are only going to get worse and worse. The therapist politely takes his leave. That night, it all kicks off. We don't see exactly what happens, but there are screams and blood, and Sam is able to walk right out of his cell. Some creature has conveniently hacked the lock off. There's no one around. He heads straight out of the asylum. Lacking anything better to do, he wanders into the cinema, showing the latest hit, in the Mouth of Madness, starring him. And also note that on the movie poster you see outside the film, it even says a film by John Carpenter. <laughs> nice touch. So they don't just say the title of the movie in the movie. They say that the name of the movie's director in the movie. That had to be rough because they had to come up with the movie poster while they were making the movie. You usually well, don't the movie do that posters, until afterwards. The movie posters in the film is totally different from the movie poster on the cover. Of the oh, movie. is it? Yeah, okay. completely different. Uh, also, well. when he's picking at that movie poster in the earlier part of the film, there's a tear. And when he pulls it all the way off at the end, it's his face also in the that's, poster. That's right. That's right. Alone, Sam Neill sits back and enjoys the movie a lot more than I did. We see flashes of what has come before, and they were right. They made a movie of the book straight away, and it all happened like Sutter Kane wrote it. Sam just starts to laugh and laugh and we roll credits, <laughs> but I still don't get it. Oh, look, it's simple. Boy meets publishing company. Company makes boy hang out with girl. Writer becomes God. Girl becomes fiction. Boy becomes messianic tool of the apocalypse. Writer wears a fetching turtleneck. Boy witnesses the end of the world and laughs and laughs. It's simple. Oh, right. Right in front of me. <laughs> it's a story that's been told a thousand times. Hail as old as time. Sorry, the turtleneck fit. Uh, <laughs> uh, God, my fingers are killing me. This is, uh, this is getting way too far. All right, so then the conclave went to judgment. Judgment with the, Does judgment have an E in it? To judgment. But if it's time for us to go to judgment, then uh, I have some thoughts I'd like to share. So it's 
clear that Sutter Kane is a shitty author. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Like this I mean, guy. The turtleneck alone proves it. I think they're definitely making a dig at Stephen King here. From the snatches of prose we hear in the dialogue, all the pat horror devices we see used all over Hobbes End, all the lazy storytelling tropes, uh, chief among them, the vast yet vague evil that exists without any goal or method, but still somehow infects the town and its people, making them evil. Um, Kane's not a spectacularly shitty author, though, which would be its own special kind of entertaining. Um, but, you know, he's a lazy, mediocre hack. If it weren't for people going insane and bleeding from the eyes, there'd be absolutely nothing special about Kane's writing whatsoever. Um, <laughs> and like I said, while this representation of Kane is almost certainly a dig at Stephen King, it's it's possible that John Carpenter could be using the character's mediocrity to be making a subtle joke, commenting on the banality of evil. I mean, we all know Carpenter's a smart guy, um, but even if he's making that comment, there are so many other things going on in this film all at the same time that any subtle observation like that gets completely lost in the noise. To that, like the mediocrity of Sutter Kane's writing, the acknowledged mediocrity of it is in fact a commentary um, it may not just be on the banality of evil, but also kind of the, the repetitiveness and banality of the way we imagine evil. And we imagine it as these like monsters and this and that, as opposed to what evil generally really is in the world, right? Yeah, I mean, when, uh, when Sam Neill says, oh, he's just a hack horror writer to the publishers, they don't argue that. They say, yeah, yeah, but he sells tons of books. That's all right. they care about. Yeah, I mean, this... minds that he's bad. Yeah, I mean, right. this, is, this predates the whole, like, Twilight series, but, oh, my God, talk about something that was super popular that was just horribly written, man. I mean, the only reason that first book was like over a hundred pages was because they increased the type size. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did like, you know, at one point I'm like, well, this is super popular. Maybe there's something to it. I tried to pick up a book. I couldn't get past the first freaking chapter because I'm just like this. This isn't writing. This is a travesty. <laughs> this is that's what you're basically saying. It's like the Wheel of Time series. No, the Wheel of Time series, at least, you know, there was some prose and there was a lot of wheel, build, there was wheel a, building. There was a lot building, of prose. But, yeah. <laughs> there was a but, lot uh, of prose. I mean, that it wasn't just, good prose. That was just too wording, the, too much wording. This was like Twilight is on the level like it's not even written at a fifth grade level. It, it It's horrible. Well, yeah. what I'm getting at with this is that this movie is so unwieldy and so scattershot because the idea is so big and it's so big that it's basically impossible to execute, even for somebody who is such an accomplished storyteller as John Carpenter. Um, in essence, these points, he, he wants to make these points, but they, he, he because of the film's runtime, he has to make them in such sketchy, impressionistic ways that they really only barely hint at the depth that's behind them. And yeah. they come so thick and fast one right after the other, right after the other, appearing alongside other genre references uh, that they're also trying to wedge in their references to Stephen King books and movies and scenes that that basically the overall plot becomes really hard to distinguish. Um, and so for me, it was hard to tell whether the creator was being serious or was actually making fun of the genre or making fun of the people who take it seriously or both. Um, so at the end of the film, I'm left wondering whether this movie is a frustrating attempt at meta horror that's so far up its own ass that it's become a singularity or whether it's genius level satire. Um, <laughs> I would it, say both. In yeah. the mouth of Matt, it's, it's a postmodernism. I think, I think that maybe the writer meant it to be like 
you know, this big deep thing, but John Carpenter took it and just went, nah, we're going to have to make this satire because I can't fucking pull that off on this budget. Well, <laughs> see, the movie is a hacky horror ripoff of Stephen King's hacky horror ripoff of H.P. Lovecraft's hacky horror ripoff of Edgar Allan Poe's hacky horror ripoff of moody gothic French poet Baudelaire. Each successive generation is a poorer quality than the last because it feeds primarily upon the previous generation and go far enough down this recursive rabbit hole and eventually you end up with the human centipede. <laughs> Speaking of the human centipede, you might say that John Carpenter predicted that piece of hokum here because in contemplating this film, we see each generation's mouth of madness sewn to the ass of madness of the preceding generation with us, the audience, as the last link in the chain, swallowing Baudelaire's shit after it's been recycled through four previous generations. You know, I take it back. This film is a piece of genius level satire <laughs> okay well let me ask you this is the film following the wrong person because this isn't really sam neill's story this is such a Kane's story we just happen to be viewing it through the eyes of some insurance investigator who's only really touching the edges of what's really going on we should really be looking at the film about sutter Kane. It's uh, it's all about him and what he's getting up to. And that would have been a real film with real, real important no, stuff. Happening. No, no, no. Disagree. I, Disagree. I, so, I don't know. Another movie about a writer. I mean, come on. Uh, no, no, no. So here, here's where I disagree. So this movie is about Sam Neill in the same way that Blade Runner is about Harrison Ford. OK, um, this actually talking from the uh, character concept of like a character in a story, knowing that it's a story. Um, I know you're all familiar with uh, Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead mm -hmm. and Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, right? Of course. Yes, of course. You're all well-read. This kind of uh, meta, like being stuck as a character in someone else's story and you cannot, for the life of you, no matter what you do, change the outcome is a lot better told in these other two stories. Like, for instance... Guildenstern once said, wheels have been set in motion. They have their own pace to which we are condemned. Each move is dictated by the previous one. And that is the meaning of order. If we start being arbitrary, it'll all just be shambles. You know, and it's what Sam Neill is doing. It's all shambles because he is trying to knock things out of order. But it's like one of those things he tries to drive off. You know, the writer's like, nope. And he plows into the crowd of flesh-eating mutants, you know? And he's like, no, I'm going to drive this way. Nope. And he, you know, you actually are kind of seeing the rewrites to kind of redirect him. So mm -hmm. it's that kind of meta-level commentary that makes this story interesting and stories about characters knowing that they're in a story interesting. There's and we talk keep talking about Stephen King. If you have read the Dark Tower series, um, Stephen King at one point writes himself into his story, which comprises the world of all of his stories. And also, as he did it, also as a way to process the trauma of his own car accident when he got hit by a car when he was walking down the road. And he writes that all into it. And I think by doing that he actually did a much better commentary of that meta-ness than this movie did, but I'm pretty sure it would have liked to have hit those levels in notes. It just didn't. But I don't know. What he's saying conclave. is that we should, we should run down John Carpenter with a car and <laughs> Not then at he this could age. make this movie. 
Well, no, I mean, because the I, I don't know, I, you know, but that's a good point, though. Carpenter was predictive here, I think, because this film mm-hmm. shows the world being brought to an end via the imagination of a mediocre horror author, which is actually a pretty great description of the state of the world right now in 2022. I mean, people say we're in the worst of all possible timelines, but I disagree because terrible would still be something spectacular. We're in the most mediocre of possible timelines. And John Carpenter could see it all the way back in 1995. We're all Sam Neill having a laugh at ourselves, only this time it's via the lens of social media rather than a cinema screen. That's that's deep, dude. <laughs> and this is when the Conclave decided to change subjects before they realized they were actually part of a story that I was writing. I just oh, wanted to say that I think that the Conclave is doing a disservice to the amazing special effects houses, KNB, FX, and ILM who to this day, people really applaud their work in this movie as being standing the test of time, considering it was made in the 90s. That's a huge compliment. And the amount of effort and 12 weeks, for example, took for Can B to create all the practical effects for the film. Like, I, give, I think that's doing them a disservice not to recognize that. I'll, I'll give it up for KMB, but I mean, ILM, no, nobody's heard of those guys since the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's definitely an amazing monster movie here that we never got to see while they were running around doubting the nature of reality. There was so much interesting <laughs> monster work and effects work happening that we should have had so much more of because it could have gone down all these different avenues into these crazy little side things happening that we just see a glimpse of for a moment and then move away from but there's your meta commentary right there because isn't the best horror film the ones that show the least of the monster the ones that show the monster the least there's the ones that people remember the mon- that the monster is the most horrifying so in this yeah, case the monster like, movie we wanted to see we only saw little fragments of though ja- i think the professor is right oh. like could you imagine right an entire Sutter cinematic universe of like more movies each one a different Sutter cane like the, the greenhouse of unpleasantness and, and the gazebo of death defying deathliness and like all that shit. Like every single monster that we see Sam Neill getting chased by down that corridor is like a different goddamn movie. That, that would, I, that would oh be great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No acting, no story, no script, just the monsters eating people. For an hour and a half. <laughs> monsters eating people. Uh, that, that would certainly be something. I, I, would, I would show up for that. Uh, I was just also saying that um, I do agree with Illuminator Andy in the sense that they took 12 weeks to create an 18 foot by 18 foot wall of monsters that was designed with animatronics and puppeteering, which was on a massive roller that took 25 people to operate. And yet it's in the movie for like a second. Yeah, right. It's like 10 seconds of time. and all- Which is... A horrible shame. <laughs> Wall of Monsters, the movie. The <laughs> saying, I, I could get behind that series. <laughs> also, one of the heads of this uh, KNB, Greg Nicotero, wh- during the filming, this monstrous practical effect rolled over him, and he was sent to the hospital during production with a leg injury. Ooh. Dang. And that's going to be a fun one to explain to the doctors in the emergency room. You'll never believe what ran into me today. Telling a story about a story where he was telling a story about a story. So we're telling the story about him telling a story to the doctor about the story that he was making that's about a story within a story. 
Yeah. Andy did say that, or someone said that ILM who cares about them, but an interesting fact about yeah, them. Yeah, that was Andy. <laughs> the interesting fact about them is that they were brought on just for that scene where Sutter Kane rips himself apart. Now, apparently the original script had the whole of Hobbes End being sucked through this rip, but they didn't have enough budget in the movie. So one <laughs> of the effects artists at ILM suggested that Sutter Kane tear himself apart. And that's actually what ended up in the final. And film. that's way better. Yeah. It's funny how often like budget restrictions lead to amazing things. So I was, I was listening to this recently. So is anybody familiar with the intro to Lord of War? It's a interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. basically, it's it's about uh, Nicholas Cage as a weapons yeah, yeah. dealer. And yeah. the Intro. It follows a single bullet from the factory where it was made to where it's shipped to where it's sold, mm -hmm. all the way into the gun that it's loaded into into some third world conflict in Africa to the poor kid who gets shot in the head with it. Right. And they shot that at the end of the movie when they had run out of budget, and they were like, "Wait, we need an intro to this movie, and we want to do something cool," and they had to figure out how to do all of that on like next to no budget. I think they did it for like $19,000 or something like that. Maybe it was 90,000, right? Which for like a major motion picture is next yeah. to nothing. And, and, and it came out amazing partially because of that. So I think uh, Professor Andrea, you are, you're onto something like the ripping himself open the way like artist as world builder is also self-destruction is mm -hmm. big I like to, I like to think of it as like the Jaws effect. I mean, if the mechanical shark had been working throughout the entire shoot, it would have been there. So in like all those shots where you don't see the shark, but it's the shots that you don't see the shark that actually make the movie more suspenseful. So in, in the I in the end, actually knew what he was doing. Yes. <laughs> you you you're you're left in the end just realizing that less is more, smaller mm -hmm. is bigger. And past is prologue. <laughs> I'm going to murder you. <laughs> Speaking of which, this conclave is getting rather long. So, judgment. I judge this film guilty on all counts. As much as I hate to come down on my man, John Carpenter, he didn't actually write this, so I'm going to judge it guilty. Absolutely Sorry. guilty. I as the Samuel laughs, the credits roll, the lights come up in the movie house, and at the back, Stephen King stands up like Orson Welles and just starts slow clapping the whole thing. <laughs> it's absolutely guilty. And and I would agree, this movie is delightfully giddily guilty. So you're saying we've swallowed what was in the mouth of madness? Oh Jesus Christ. Are you saying it's uh, past the lips of madness? Uh, over Swirl the tongue. Around the tongue of madness. <laughs> I Down the throat of madness. Now, just make a note. I wasn't making a sex joke there. That was just... Uh -huh. Uh -huh. No, I really wasn't. It didn't. Uh -huh. It just didn't occur to me that it was that until you guys all groaned. No, but and I was like, it's oh, much better that way. Yeah. I, I would definitely not spit out that matter. <laughs> damn it. Let's end this. Okay. With all that madness resolved in its own mouth... And we've sent Brother Methuselah to the dentist of sanity, I hope. Uh, I declare this conclave closed. Finally, it was all over, and we came to the end of the movie. I was pretty sure I'd blown everyone's mind with my choice. This is a movie that dares to ask the question, am I actually real? And the answer is no. Beautiful, beautiful. And you know the best way to celebrate after working so hard? 
You're gonna say bug powder, aren't you? No, you don't know that. Maybe. Yes. I need a new fucking typewriter. This shitty, slimy, mutant thing from Interzone just freaks everyone out, and now everything smells of bug powder. Zachariah was totally right. I should never... Never should have brought that thing home. I really ought to listen to Zachariah more. He's super smart. He always knows what's best. Ha! Two can play that game, Daniel. He said to himself, two can play at that game, Daniel. And then they totally got down to it. Sounded like two slices of bologna slapping together in the dark. Mmm. No one can ever see this. My secret shame, my flaming passion. Honey, can I smell something burning? That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Daniel Scribner, Andy Slack, Andrea Palladino, Zachariah Burks, and Ethan Ireland. Written by Andy Slack and Daniel Scribner. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society LLC. Fuck nuts. It. I did what you asked. I got the Interocitor up the ten flights of stairs from the hazardous waste storage basement. It only took me an hour and a half. Brethren? Brethren? Oh, fiddlestalks and conflammery. They've already adjourned the conclave. How will Brother Andre get to weigh in? I suppose it's all up to me. Again! Now I can do this. Let's see. First, align a subspace transit. This bit here, yes, to Altair 4. Yes, and now for the psionic wavefront attunement. Him. Ground control to Brother Andre. Ground control to Brother Andre. I think it's the interocitor. Hold on, hold on. Hey, yo, guys. New brain, who dis? But seriously, though, Brother Methuselah, is that you? You copy, Brother Andre. What was that? The chumps. I must have forgotten. The cannibalistic humanoid underground mutant people have gotten loose again. I must hide. Hey, Brother Methuselah. You all right? 